Hello, and welcome to Professor Kozlowski Lectures. We have so much to talk about today. It is a new year. It is January 4th, 2022, at least from where I'm recording right now. And I have nothing but high expectations for this year. Like, yes, horrible stuff is likely to happen. Horrible stuff has been happening for the last, like, six years consistently. But whatever, we're not going to focus on that, because... We're going to make this year as good as we can, and we're going to do it by doing some new stuff. Um, if you listen to my final lecture from the philosophy of love and friendship, you heard me talk about my expectations for this spring and how I was hoping to do a lecture series on Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Well, here we are. It is the spring, and we are totally going to do that. Or at least we're going to try to do that, like time permitting and all that. Um... But seriously, my course load is manageable this semester. I'm not teaching any new courses, at least at this point in the year. We are all hoping to be in person, which means less online recordings, generally speaking. And even if we do move online, most of the material for both my mythology and my love and friendship class are already recorded. So we can focus most of our efforts on talking about Dostoevsky. Um, now, there will probably be some other classes interspersed in here. I am going to have to record new syllabus lectures for the two classes that I'm teaching this semester. I have overhauled my love and friendship class a great deal, so it is entirely possible that you will get, like, random lectures about Plato's Symposium or other things of that nature. Um, we will see how that pans out. Um, but my primary focus, the primary thing you're going to be seeing on Professor Kozlowski lectures for the next semester, from now until May, is going to be me talking about Dostoevsky, as per your request. Um, we are going to read through the Brothers Karamazov, and we're going to tackle uh, this piecemeal, like about 50 pages a week, until we finish the entire book in what will likely be about 16 weeks, because it's huge. Um, and that's kind of the fun part about it. Like, this is the biggest and sprawliest of Dostoevsky's novels. Um, and honestly, like, it's not even necessarily my favorite. Like, I know that everybody loves Dostoevsky, and specifically they love the, the Brothers Karamazov. Um, and you probably would expect me to do the same, what with my, you know, pronounced love of big, sprawly literature that, you know, is just full of big, explosive ideas and stuff. But... Actually, you know, like, I'm a huge fan of Dostoevsky, do not get me wrong by any extent of the imagination, but this is not my favorite of his works. Like, I love The Brothers Karamazov, it is big and sprawly and messy and filled with wonderful ideas, and I think it does sort of make for this wonderful capstone on Dostoevsky's career. Um, but at the same time, I love, the, I love Crime and Punishment because it is this wonderfully streamlined story about, you know, Raskolnikov, like trying to figure out what he's doing with his life. And if I had to pick, like, a big, sprawly Dostoevsky novel to talk about, like, all under my own steam, I'd probably pick Demons, because it's just wonderful. Like, it's just fun, and there's all this crazy stuff going on, and I find it incredibly relevant to our time. But that's another conversation for another day. We are excited now about the Brothers Karamazov, because we get to talk about Dostoevsky for 16 weeks. At least, like, an hour a week for 16 weeks. Um, we get to walk through this huge, big, sprawly book and get to see what it all is going on in here. Um, and this is fairly new for me. Like, we have talked our way through 
books before on this on this class. Like we've talked through the symposium, we've talked through Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, we've talked through Goethe's Faust, um, and it's always been fun when I do that, and I always get good feedback when I do. Like I definitely had at least one German student say that he finally understood Faust because I explained it, and I'm like, dude, something is wrong here. Like something is very wrong here. Um, but I've always enjoyed doing it, my, my students online have always enjoyed doing it, and I want to make this into a habit. Like, as much as possible, I want to do Dostoevsky this spring, and if it works out, great, next fall we're going to do something else. Maybe we'll read one of Dostoevsky's other novels, or maybe we'll tackle Tolstoy, or maybe we'll read something in the English literature canon, or maybe I'll just pull out some science fiction and we'll read that, or, I don't know, who knows? It's 2022! Everything is potential! Who knows what could happen? And this is my podcast, and nobody's paying me to do it yet. Um, we'll talk about that in a moment. So I get to do whatever I want, and this is what I want to do. So let's do that. And I will absolutely accept feedback, and by all means, keep emailing me if you have questions or if you want to make suggestions or anything. All that is super cool. Um, and I hope that this proves to be enlightening and helpful. Um, but let's talk business. Like, enough being really excited about Dostoevsky and being really excited about the project, let's talk about how we're actually going to do this. Um, so again, we're going to take this week by week. Every Tuesday I am hoping to upload a podcast that will, for at least an hour, probably somewhere between an hour and an hour and a half, we'll talk about whatever it is that we read for this week. Um, I'm gearing this to about 50 pages a week, uh, which conveniently enough, Dostoevsky has divided his giant, sprawly, messy book into parts, um, parts and books, and each one of the 12 or 15 or 13 books we're going to basically tackle each week. So for next week, we are going to read part one, book one, A Nice Little Family. Um, it is short, and we will discuss it in great detail, and we'll talk about the setup that Dostoevsky is doing there, and we're going we're gonna to sort of walk through all the characters that he's introducing. And then the next week after that, it'll be part or book two, An Inappropriate Gathering, which is conveniently, like, almost perfectly 50 pages, and we will just keep on going from there. Um, towards the end, once we get to the trial, we're going to have to break things up into two... Uh, weeks for per book because they get kind of super long once the, the denouement approaches. Um, but for now, one book per week and we'll talk about how it changes from there. If you're wondering what book to read, my plan is to read from Peter and Volokonsky's translation of the Brothers Karamazov. Um, this is the fancy red one, or at least my copy is red. I think they've changed it since then. The one that was originally published in 1990. It should be readily available just about anywhere. It has sort of become the default translation for reading Dostoevsky at this point in history, um, which there's a whole other conversation to sort of take place about like the way that translations sort of fall in and out of fashion and so on and so forth. But we're not going to have that conversation here. What I am going to say, though, is I want to contrast a little bit the Peter Volokonsky translation against the sort of other historically dominant translation of Dostoevsky, namely Constance Garnett's edition. Um, 
Constance Garnett was very popular for a long time. Like, she is a 100-plus-year-old translation of Dostoevsky at this point, which puts her squarely in the public domain, uh, which means that if you are not going to run into the period of Volokonsky translation, you are most likely going to run into the Constance Garnett one. Um, you go on Project Gutenberg, you'll find Constance Garnett's translation. You buy, like, the Bantam Classics edition, it's probably Constance Garnett's translation. Um... And honestly, I've heard quite a few scholars getting sort of snippy about Pivir Volokonsky, especially over the last, like, 10, 20 years or so, um, in part because scholars as a group are very resistant to change, um, but also because many of them have argued that Garnett, being closer to Dostoevsky in time, has a more accurate rendition of Dostoevsky's own prose. Um, Constance Garnett wrote in typically Victorian realistic English, like she followed the realist movement in the same vein as like Charles Dickens or Anthony Trollope or um, Jane Austen, George Eliot, all of those writers. Um, and to some degree Dostoevsky is also a realist, so translating realist Russian prose into realist English prose in the same 19th century that Dostoevsky was writing seems to be a fairly logical move. Um, Pivir Volokonsky, by, by contrast, is kind of doing their own thing. Uh, they're writing in contemporary American prose, or contemporary English prose, or something along those lines, with all of its vitriol and its excitement and its occasional weird literary locutions. Um, and it is passionate, and it is violent, and it is frequently just bursting at the seams with extravagance and, its, and sort of like people mouthing off for various reasons. Um, stuff that would not come up in Garnett's more restrained translation. Um, and on the one hand, I see what these scholars are saying, like P. Varen and Volokonsky are just doing flash in the pan for contemporary audiences who have the attention spans of gnats, um, while Garnett is doing something artistic and restrained and careful. But at the same time, from what I understand, and let me stress, I am no Russian scholar. We will talk about that momentarily. From what I understand, Dostoevsky, as much as he was kind of a realist, he was also kind of not. And trying to render especially the Brothers Karamazov and his later work into realistic English Victorian prose isn't necessarily the right move. Um, Dostoevsky, when he first started writing in Russia, he's writing in 19th century Russia, and Russia is in this really weird spot throughout the 19th century. Like, in the 18th century, Peter the Great shows up and he's like, okay, we're going to take this backwater province of Europe and we're going to turn it into a center for enlightenment and art and civilization. We're going to, in short, catch up with the rest of Europe. And, like, overnight, over the course of 20 to 30 years, Peter the Great radically reformed Russian society, but it didn't quite go all the way through. In the 19th century, Russia is kind of a mess. Um, they are sort of running some reforms, and others are not so much. There are factions who are absolutely on board with catching up with the Europeans and civilizing Russia, and there are also people who are like, actually, Russia has a very distinct culture and identity that needs to be preserved. And there are, as a consequence, these sort of old Russians and who are more conservative, who are pushing back against these reforms, and these liberals who are more contemporarily minded, who are sort of fighting you know, to reform everything. And Dostoevsky 
doesn't land hard on either side of this politically, at least not yet. When he first comes onto the literary scene, in the following the, in the tradition of Pushkin and Gogol and Lermontov and, and even Turgenev to some degree, he writes this novel called Poor Folk, which is classically realistic. Like, you could definitely read it right alongside Charles Dickens and not see any difference in the way that it is written. Um, it is a little bit more heartfelt, a little bit more passionate than your usual, more restrained British realistic work, but every bit of the same focus on contemporary problems and the plight of the poor is right there, front and center in Poor Folk. Um, and it was hailed at the time. This was this big moment in Russian literature. Dostoevsky was considered to have written the first great Russian realistic novel in the tradition of George Sand and all of these other French and English writers who had been writing at that time. Up until then, Russia's sort of literary focus had been primarily more romantic in scope. Pushkin had written a lot of romances. Gogol was doing the, the Brothers Grimm thing of sort of raising up old Russian fairy tales and folk tales and turning them into something artistic, as well as his sort of more realistic attempts with things like the overcoat, which... That's just a whole other conversation. We can't get sidetracked on Google. Um, suffice it to say that Dostoevsky, everybody saw this as this big new moment in Russian literature, this new opportunity, this new writer who had all of this potential and who embodied this new movement that was typically European and that Russia desperately needed. And then Dostoevsky wrote a bunch of other stuff, and they hated it. They were like, this is... This is romantic. This isn't realism. We, you were supposed to be the chosen one. Why did you fail us? And Dostoevsky absolutely wrestled with this. Like, his initial success, like, inflated his own opinion of himself. And then he wrote all these other books that he was personally very proud of, and nobody understood or appreciated them. Um, some of them are pretty rough. Like, I'm not a huge fan of the double as these things go. Um... But Dostoevsky was already on track to change. He was becoming something unique. And I would really hesitate to call him a realist. Um, there are realistic elements here in this novel, for sure. Dostoevsky's concern for the plight of the poor and for, you know, the, the struggles of a contemporary Russia are very much here in the Brothers Karamazov. But the first thing that we should notice that absolutely distinguishes Dostoevsky from the run of realists is that the Brothers Karamazov isn't set in a city. Um, one of the classic trademarks of realistic writing is it is urban in scope, as a rule. Like, you have some realistic writers like Thomas Hardy who are sort of interested in, in more urbane settings in, in sort of rural England or rural Europe. Um, and they're still sort of interested in the plight of the, the oppressed, the, the poor, and so on and so forth. But Dostoevsky isn't doing that. Like... Brothers Karamazov is about a relatively wealthy landowning family in one of the outer provinces of Russia, and it is not interested in the plight of the poor and downtrodden, at least not front and center. Alyosha is certainly concerned with that, but it's not the central focus of the book. The central focus of the book is humans being humans. Like, in virtually all of that scope, they struggle, they love, they are betrayed, they hurt one another, they even murder one another. 
there are trials and there are investigations and there are people who, you know, suffer from financial setbacks and who have, you know, their own sort of ideological problems. You're dealing with the church and religion here as well as sort of secular life. Um, there's a lot of ideas on display here, which is something that the realists don't generally traffic in all that much. Dostoevsky exists at this extremely strange intersection, in part because he is Russian, because the Russians haven't carefully delineated all of these different artistic movements. He is very much a romantic, and he is very much a realist, and he is very much a modernist. Um, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about these different artistic movements as far as you know, the future of our discussion of Dostoevsky is concerned. We're going to take the book on its own merits. And as a consequence, since we are looking beyond and outside of these categories, I'm not sure Garnett is the right way to go on this one, is what it all comes down to. All those people praising Garnett's translation because it is typically realist fail to recognize exactly the scope of what Dostoevsky is doing here. He is way more than a realist. He has so many things going on that I would hesitate to put him in any camp, at least wholeheartedly in any camp. He is doing a lot of stuff. Realism might be one of those things, but we're certainly not going to limit him at that. We're certainly not going to see him as a realist, at least not in our discussion. So I'm sticking with Peter and Volokonsky, and when I quote the book, I'm going to be quoting Peter and Volokonsky, and when I refer to page numbers, it'll be the page numbers in my Peter Volokonsky edition, and I highly recommend that you do the same. It should be relatively easy and cheap to track down a copy of their, their version of Dostoevsky at this point. Like, I think their brother's Karamazov goes for like 15 to $20 on Amazon, um, especially if you can track it down used, which you likely will be able to. There are a ton of them in circulation these days. But that said, I will not fault you if you go the Garnett route. You can get her book for free on Project Gutenberg. I will be occasionally referring to my copy of The Brothers Karamazov by Constance Garnett, in part because I have this gorgeous edition which includes these woodcut illustrations. I don't know where the hell I found this thing, but it is just beautiful and this weird conversation piece. Because the illustrations are just batshit crazy, like frankly off-putting at some times, and it's just wonderful. Um, so I totally respect you if you find another translation. That is totally fine with me. Um, but if you are in fact going to just sit down and read the Brothers Karamazov for the purposes of this course, I highly recommend Peter and Volokonsky. That'll be what I'm using. That'll be what I'm referring to. Um, so that said, using the Peter and Volokonsky translation, I can instruct you. We will be starting with this first part on this nice family, um, this nice little family, reading from pages 7 to 33 in order to do our first reading. Um, I also highly recommend that you read, in addition to this, uh, Peter and Volokonsky has a very handy list of characters on Roman numeral pages 19 to 20. Um, it is wonderful. And Peter Volokonsky will also provide a whole bunch of notes that I'll be occasionally referring to. They are, they are fairly sophisticated as scholars go, um, and this is a pretty thoroughly annotated edition. Um, it is not like, you know, Norton Critical Edition levels by any extent of the imagination, but it is helpful. Um, and this is actually light for them, like... Many of their other translations of Dostoevsky are even more heavily annotated. Uh, this was an early foray for them. Brothers Karamazov was the book that sort of vaulted them onto the scene back in 1990. 
So I will be referring to many of their annotations to other works. I will be, you know, talking about some of their sources and so on and so forth. But again, read Peter Volokonsky's version of Book One for next time, uh, The Nice Little Family, and definitely look over their cast of characters and maybe even read some of their introduction if you want. I will probably be re re reading that and referring to it in next week's lecture anyway, when we're getting track of all of these characters. Um, but that brings us to the sort of second major thing that I wanted to talk about today. Why me? Like, I am not a Dostoevsky scholar by any extent of the imagination. Um, I have not studied Dostoevsky formally, period. Like, never. Not once. I have never sat in a class on the subject of Dostoevsky or any Russian literature whatsoever and gotten a grade for whatever I had taken away from it. This has never happened. The closest I've ever come is when I was in a Christian philosophy class once upon a time, I wrote a paper on the idea of the holy fool, as it appears in Dostoevsky and in Russian literature generally, as sort of an offshoot of Orthodox Christianity and the sort of discussion surrounding that. And I didn't even do great on that paper. Like, it was a fine paper. I think I got a B or a B plus on it. But it wasn't like an A astonishing work that changed the world or anything. I was still fairly young and naive, as scholars go, and while I think I learned quite a bit from writing that paper, it certainly wasn't the finest work that I produced during my master's. So, I am not formally trained in reading Dostoevsky. I don't know Russian. I do not, you know, I have not studied this stuff extensively or professionally in any extent of the imagination. But I've been reading Dostoevsky and I know stuff about Dostoevsky as much as virtually any of the things that I am professionally trained in. I started reading Dostoevsky my senior year of high school. Um, I had a teacher who was teaching us a course on philosophy, and he was a lover of Dostoevsky, and he hooked me on him, and I read Crime and Punishment, Notes from the Underground, and Demons all that spring, uh, starting from spring break and going on to the end of my senior year in May. And this became a tradition for me. Um, every year since, like this was 2005, for 16 years, every spring I read Dostoevsky, without fail. So in some ways, it's actually really appropriate that I am going to be teaching the Brothers Karamazov this spring. This is not actually going to do, going to take over my Dostoevsky reading this year. I fully intend to continue my reading of Joseph Frank's four-volume bi biography and to reread The Idiot um, once spring break rolls around, which I believe this year is going to be like the first couple of weeks of March because my schedule is weird. Um, but I do, in fact, encourage you to read Dostoevsky in the spring. Um, many would argue that Dostoevsky is better read in the winter when it is cold and gray and dark, and at the same time I'm like, well, have you met spring break in America? Like, it is usually the first couple of weeks of March, and it is very miserable, and it is usually cold and snowy, at least here in, North, in uh, New Jersey. Um, suffice it to say, Dostoevsky has a reputation. Um, and it is not necessarily deserved. We'll come back around to that as well. Um, but for 16 years, I have been doing this. And for 16 years, I have been getting more and more knowledge about Dostoevsky along the way. Um, I have read all of his major novels, with the exception of Humiliated and Insulted, which I keep on my shelf on the off chance that I'm about to die, and I want to read some, like the last bit of Dostoevsky in order to complete my, my knowledge. But also because until that happens, I want to know that there's something of Dostoevsky's that I have not read and that I am 
still likely to be surprised and excited about. Um, like, this is my relationship to Dostoevsky. It is that profound and deep and meaningful to me. Um, but I have, in fact, read Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, Demons, and The Brothers Karamazov at least three times apiece. Uh, I just read The Adolescent for the second time last year. Um, also frequently translated as A Raw Youth. Um, I am familiar with most of his short stories, although many of them are kind of not great and are difficult to find in English translation. Um, I have read and reread The Writer's Diary in total at least twice, um, and I've also perused extensively his selected letters and stuff. Like, I have a ton of material surrounding Dostoevsky that I have gone through multiple times and that I know by heart at this point in time. What's more, I know the context. Uh, in addition to my like introduction, my last year of, of my high school career, uh, my final year in college, I spent the entire year reading Russian literature, like just familiarizing myself with the entire 19th century Russian canon. I read Pushkin, I read Gogol, I read Turgenev, I read Tolstoy, I read Chekhov. Um, obviously, I am familiar with Bulgakov. I have read multiple other writers writing about Dostoevsky and all of the introductory works that I can find on the subject. And as I said, I am working my way through Joseph Frank's giant four-volume biography of Dostoevsky um, as we speak. So I know this stuff. I know his references. I know what is going on in Russia at the time that he is writing. I know the political issues that he is concerned with, and I know the trials that he was paying attention to, which is especially relevant for our discussion at the end of this book. Um, and Dostoevsky is unique in this sense because he actually has a very modern approach to writing. He is basically doing law and order before law and order was a thing. Like, when you hear all of these, you know, movie taglines or television show taglines where it's like, this story was ripped from the headlines. Yeah, Dostoevsky was doing that 150 years ago. Um, the Brothers Karamazov is less dedicated to ripped from the headlines, big time stories about Russian trials and stuff, although there is certainly an element of that. The murder of Fyodor Karamazov is wrapped up in, or at least partially inspired by some of these trials and, you know, these questions that, that Dostoevsky kept running into, which all ties into the 19th century reforms. <laughs> this whole thing! Um, but even more than that, like, crime and punishment and demons are both rooted in real-life, true, factual crime accounts um, of the day that Dostoevsky was interested in writing about. So I will not brook anybody talking about, like, how that's a bullshit way of doing literature. One of the greatest writers in all of history used that as his inspiration, and therefore I have... No, no interest in, in sort of debating whether or not that's a legitimate literary technique. Law and Order to me is a well-established tradition and working in a very important literary vein in that sense. Um, but to get back to what we were talking about, um, Dostoevsky is unique in this sense. He is unique as a writer. He definitely belongs in this tradition, and I am very familiar with this tradition and everything that is going on around it. Um, at the same time, I am not formally scholarly about this. Like, I will be pulling from a lot of the scholars that I have read, and I will be leaning on their authority here, but again, I've never read this guy in the actual Russian, and my word should not go as law here. Um, if you are, in fact, a, you know, Russian student or Russian scholar, uh, my authority is limited. 
This is what I've gotten from sheer experience. Just fascination and passion for this writer and this moment in time largely grown out of my fascination with this writer and my passion for his ability to capture the human experience. Um, I love this guy in short. Like, my wife will even tease me about it. She's like, yes, I am not threatened by other women, but I am always threatened by your love of Dostoevsky. And we've just kind of come to terms with this. And this is not hyperbole. Like, again, every year I come back to this writer, I have never exhausted the richness of Dostoevsky's writing, the richness of his perspective on human beings. Um, I am profoundly moved by his perspective, by his take on the world. And I'm hoping to convey that here. Like, my goal here is not to provide the definitive, you know, annotated commentary on Dostoevsky. Not by any extent of the imagination. I am underqualified for that by a long shot. Um, what I am intending to do here is make him accessible. I know that when you pick up his 800-page mammoth, The Brothers Karamazov, it is daunting. And it is further daunting by the fact that it's Russian, and it has all the very typically Russian things going on here. Every character has three names, and none of them make sense, and they are all accompanied by nicknames and, and weird patronymics and stuff. I recognize that it's rooted in a time period that many of us are not familiar with, and a culture that many of us are not familiar with. And I want to walk you through that. I want to help you navigate around all of these obstacles and see what Dostoevsky is doing underneath. Because the fact of the matter is, you don't need my help to do that. Like, plenty of people, like myself, came to this book with no preparation beforehand, just an interest in seeing what the big deal was. Why was everybody talking about this book? And they take something away from it. They take something profound from it. They read the story of the Grand Inquisitor, and they're like, wow, that's fascinating. Or they see Ivan's wrestling with the devil towards the end of the book, and they're thinking, oh, that poor guy. Or they see uh, the sort of, like, investigation of Mitya's potential murdering of his own father. And they're like, this is really powerful. This is really exciting. This is really interesting. Um, they see the way that these characters behave with one another, and they're like, yes, that's also what I have experienced. That is also speaking to my own experience. I, too, know someone who is passionate and foolish. I, too, know someone who is cerebral and distant and occasionally unhinged. I, too, know someone who is hurting, or someone who is hurting others. Um, Dostoevsky addresses that head-on. And it's one of the things that I find most compelling about him. Like, he is very much the opposite of a mannered writer. There are many writers who sort of are interested in portraying the, the restraint that people have. Like, the way that we cover up our own emotions in our interactions with other people. Like, you read Hemingway and you'll see all of these very manly men refusing to talk about the suffering that they are experiencing. Whether it is the trauma of war or the inability to communicate with one another, that's something that Hemingway portrays very well. But Dostoevsky's characters are almost always raw. Almost unrealistically so, in some cases. Especially in The Brothers Karamazov. Like, if anything, I think that's the great weakness of this book is that Dostoevsky doesn't prepare you adequately for the way that these characters are going to be histrionic over the course of the book, which we'll talk about that later. But it doesn't change the fact that we get to see them. We get to see them completely, with no 
airs put on with no, you know, disguises or, or acts. We get to see right at the heart of what these characters believe and think and do, and why they do what they do as a consequence. All of their actions are logical to us in some sense. Not necessarily in the, lo in the logical in the sense of, like, it is in their best interests, or logical in the sense of it is moral, but logical in the sense of we understand who these characters are, and therefore we understand why they are behaving the way that they are behaving. We understand why Ivan feels guilt over his father's death, even though he did not ever raise a hand against him. We understand why Dmitri is behaving erratically, even while he's behaving erratically. We understand why Alyosha departs from the monastery, why he, you know, trusts the elder, why he is both embarrassed and compassionate towards his family, because we see who this character is. And that's what Dostoevsky's richness is all about. Like, he is not artistically sophisticated in that sense. There is artistic sophistication about what he's doing, for sure. It's difficult to make a work of this magnitude compelling as compelling as it is. Um, but at the same time, it's not orderly. It's not polished. It's not artistic in the sense of calculated and composed. It is artistic in the sense of seeing clearly to the heart of things. But it is not artistic in the sense that it is organized or lovely or beautiful. This is a giant, ugly, messy book but it is so profound in its observations and its ability to, to see what human beings are like that it stands up as a work of art regardless. Where it fails on the subject of artistic composition, it succeeds so dramatically on the subject of truth that it is so hard to ignore it. So with that in mind, I want to talk about what we're doing here. Like, what is the goal? If, in fact, my effort here is not going to be to provide the scholarly, you know, definitive commentary on Dostoevsky, what am I doing? Again, I want to make him accessible. That is the first goal here. I want to be able to make a writer who is, you know, 150 years old live again to a generation that has not encountered him. I also want to draw out of him what a lot of scholars either mess up or miss. Um, Dostoevsky is widely interpreted by a whole bunch of different philosophers and scholars and literary critics over, 150, over the 150 years that he's been a thing. And a lot of them have, have in my opinion, completely missed the point of what he's doing. Um, either because they've read only this book or because they have, you know, investigated him so deeply that they've missed sort of the forest for the trees, um, or because they do have only a passing familiarity with him. They haven't, like I have, studied him, like, legitimately every year for over a decade. Um, I want to sort of set the record straight on what Dostoevsky is in fact doing. I want to get at the heart of that, in short. Um, because Dostoevsky has been presented as a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, Dostoevsky is often hailed as a great philosopher in his own right. And I don't necessarily think that's untrue, but usually when that is said, it is, he is the first great existentialist, or he is, you know, the first one who, who sort of recognized the, the freedom, the radical freedom of the death of God. And on the one hand, I think, yeah, there, there's some of that in there, but on the other hand, I think, no, he's actually just describing that phenomenon, not prescribing it. The Brothers Karamazov is fascinating 
and Dostoevsky generally is fascinating because he can talk about people who believe passionately in ideas while keeping those ideas at arm's length. In fact, that's the thing that I associate the most with Dostoevsky. It is the thing that I admire the most about Dostoevsky. Many of his characters, specifically Ivan in this work, like watch him carefully and you'll see this very clearly, they have deeply rooted liberal beliefs in the 19th century tradition. One of the things that is going on in Russia in the 19th century is there are all of these young men who are getting college educations and then not doing anything with them. Like, they are trained in classical literature. They are trained to read all of the great writers of, of Europe and of Russia. Um, they are trained to have all of these wild new ideas, the Fourierism or communism or socialism or any of the, the big comprehensive world philosophies that are flying around in the 19th century. But because Russia is not one of the old-school civilized nations like France or England who have sort of come to these conclusions naturally through their participation in, you know, medieval scholarship and the Renaissance and the scientific revolution. Because this sort of civilization, this sort of ideological introduction is sort of artificial in Russia, it's only skin deep. These people are running around with these mad ideas and they don't appreciate the consequences of them. And Dostoevsky does. Dostoevsky recognizes that there are all of these young, angry, college-educated, quasi-intellectuals with nothing to do with their impressive educations. All that they end up doing with their fancy college degrees is they end up going into the civil service, or they end up back at home running land. And they get carried away with these ideas. It takes over their brains. The metaphor that he uses in the book Demons is the titular demons. Um, he is explaining these ideas as demons that possess people, that carry them off the cliff. In the, the old gospel passage about Jesus casting out demons into a, a herd of swine that immediately run off and destroy themselves. That's the image that Dostoevsky frequently uses to describe this. And I think the great irony of the historical appreciation of Dostoevsky is that most scholars who love Dostoevsky are possessed by the same demons. They believe that Dostoevsky is propounding these ideas when in fact Dostoevsky is just describing them, sort of discussing the way that they ultimately influence the people who are, who are possessed by them. It's like they've read the first half of the Brothers Karamazov, fallen in love with Ivan, and then failed to recognize what Dostoevsky actually has happened to him by the end of the book. They fail to recognize that Dostoevsky is, at the end of the day, criticizing and even condemning many of these ideas. Like, to, take, to give you an example, um, a very concrete example of that, Ivan's big thesis in the first half of the Brothers Karamazov is that since there is no God, all is permitted. He is very much emphasizing that as an atheist, there is nothing restricted from him. No moral depredation, no act of depravity, all of that is permissible. There is no one looking over his shoulder to condemn him for whatever he chooses to do. And as a consequence, he is free to do anything. And this is the central tenet of existentialism. Like, Jean-Paul Sartre in The Humanism of Existentialism quotes that passage deliberately and says that it is the foundational idea of existentialism. 
Sartre's reading of Dostoevsky is that Dostoevsky is perspicacious enough to recognize that this is true, and therefore Sartre sees this and builds an entire philosophical system off of it. But the fact of the matter is, this isn't what Dostoevsky believes. Dostoevsky basically thoroughly refutes Ivan by the end of this story, shows us in dramatic detail how Ivan ultimately falls into ruin as a consequence of this idea. Now, philosophically speaking, there isn't a philosophical refutation. There isn't an argument here. There isn't a, well, Ivan is wrong because point A, point B, point C. No, this is more the Rick and Morty approach where Pickle Rick shows up after a long extended battle sequence in the psychologist's office, and the psychologist basically tells him that he is being a dick to his family. Not that Rick is wrong, but that the conclusions of his ideas, the consequences of what he believes, are fundamentally destructive and painful. Unnecessarily so. Whether or not religion or, you know, established order or government is a lie doesn't change the fact that it is something to believe in and something worthwhile, something that helps people, something that organizes society. Whether or not nihilism and existentialism and the sort of really, like, negative and, and pessimistic philosophies that are, that are current among 19th century scholarly intellectuals in, in Dostoevsky's day, whether or not they are true, Dostoevsky recognizes they are destructive. They are bad news. They are unethical, in short. And Dostoevsky, at the end of the day, is far more concerned with the human cost of these beliefs than whether or not these beliefs are right or wrong. And we'll talk about that once we get to these points. But I want to sort of stress that. I want to set that record straight. I want to talk about where Dostoevsky is in his life when he writes this, and why. what other things that he's paying attention to, what are the things that he's writing in the writing writer's diary or in Demons or elsewhere, what his characters mean to him, in short, and what they should mean to us, what he's trying to convince us of by writing these, this story, by showing us these people and their problems. Um, I want to talk us through that. I want to see the whole book, the whole person, the whole philosophical situation that Dostoevsky is writing about. I want, in short, to give us context. So if goal number one is to make this accessible and goal number two is to set the record straight, goal number three is context. Let's talk about what this book actually means in the greater perspective of Russian history total, in the greater perspective of what's going on in Russia here in the late 19th century, in the greater perspective of what the legal system is doing and what the political system is doing and what reforms are changing Russian society and how each of the characters could represent one of the characteristics of Russia at that moment. Because that's what Dostoevsky is effectively doing here. It is allegorical in that sense. Not a pure one-to-one -one allegory. This is definitely not by any extent of the imagination, The Pilgrim's Progress, or even C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Dostoevsky is talking about the Russian soul specifically and the human soul generally when he divides this into the characters of Dmitri, the passionate Ivan, the cerebral and intellectual, and Alyosha, the compassionate. Um, 
he is definitely talking about bigger stuff here than just one particular family in one particular province in one backwater corner of Russian society. He is trying to diagnose and discuss everything that is going on in Russia at that time. What is good about the old ways and what is bad about the old ways. What is good about the new ways and what is bad about the new ways. What, what consequences exist because of all of these new reforms and all of these new changes, and whether or not Russia is ready for this level of civilization as it has been sort of thrust upon them. He is keenly interested in his homeland and in the people who live there. It is profound in all of his works. And the one thing that I want to draw out more than anything else, like as much as I admire Dostoevsky for his ability to do all of these other things that we've talked about, the one thing that always, always, always draws me back to this particular writer is his compassion. He is one of the great humanists, in short. He loves people. And he is keenly interested in people. He wants to describe them accurately. And sure, he classifies them in types. This is something that is typical of the 19th century and of 19th century Russia especially. He sees people in categories, in ways that their personality manifests, in sort of subgroups of how people function. Um, but he loves them all. And that's kind of the key here. His villains are sympathetic and admirable in some senses. His buffoons are lovable in some sense. His cold academics are in some sense pitiable and tragic. And he wants to talk about these people, how they hurt each other and why they hurt each other and why they just can't stop. He is sympathetic and compassionate, and he suffers with his characters, and we are meant to suffer with them as well. We are meant to recognize that these are not problems that are easily solved. They cannot go away magically because somebody came up with this brand new philosophical idea, or because the government has been organized in this new way. Dostoevsky recognizes that this just causes new problems. That yes, he is incredibly frustrated at the hold that vodka has over the peasants, and he wants to solve that in some way, but he also recognizes that their plight is so friggin' awful that vodka is one of the few things that they have to enjoy about life. And you can't just make it go away by improving their situation in terms of building a hospital, or giving them wages, or changing, you know, the, the society around them in these superficial kinds of ways. Dostoevsky is calling for real reform, but at the same time he recognizes that even real reform isn't going to solve a lot of these problems. They're bigger than that. And he wishes it could be better. He has plans for making it better. He wants it to be better, but he also recognizes that at the end of the day, the only way that that's going to happen is if we just become decent human beings to one another. Dostoevsky's solution, if there is a solution, isn't a weirdly familiar place. And we'll talk about that once we get to it. But keep in mind throughout, none of these characters are going to be easily dismissed. Even if we do not like them, even if we hate them, even if we are repulsed by them, note that Dostoevsky is not. Note that Dostoevsky is interested in painting them honestly, presenting to them to us in all of their humanity and that that humanity itself is admirable. This is something typical of the realists and beyond typical of the realists. Dickens is quick to sort of turn his characters into caricatures when it suits him. Tolstoy frequently does the same thing. 
I defy you to catch Dostoevsky doing the same. His characters are stand-ins for philosophical ideas. They are allegorical like interpretations of different aspects of human beings, and they are relentlessly, all to the very core of their being, human, complete people. People that we will fall in love with if all is going well with us and our souls. That's so much of what he is doing here. He is not dismissing anyone. He is not reducing them to less than they are. He, at all times, is keenly aware of what it means to be a human being, even in these weird situations, even with these weird characteristics, and he sympathizes with them and encourages us to do the same. It is probably the greatest thing that art can do for us. It is probably the reason why we should take art as something nourishing and good. It's the reason why we read books, much less big, sprawling 800-page books. There's a reason why this is considered important. There are big reasons here. Um, and I'm hoping to show that to you. I'm hoping to walk you through that. Now, that's our project. That is what I am hoping to accomplish this semester. I want to read through this entire book, show what Dostoevsky is doing both artistically and both as a sort of student of human nature. I want to talk about how that fits in with his context and everything that's going on around him and help you to understand what he's doing and what he's saying about us both then and now. But this is also a big move for me personally. This is the first time that I am going to do a complete lecture series that is completely unmoored from anything that I am actually getting paid to do. Like, I know that that sounds mercenary, but this is, in fact, what's going on. You know, up until this point, all of the lectures that I have uploaded, with the exception of the little bitty ones here and there, like when I've talked about the philosophy of America for a few days, or when I walk through most of our project on phenomenology, like, most of the classes that I have taught and that I have uploaded as lectures have been because I needed to upload them for classes that I was getting paid to teach. The Philosophy of Love and Friendship, I taught for the first time last semester, and I uploaded all of the lectures. Um, I uploaded all the lectures on my Intro to Philosophy class, and on my Mythology class, and on my General Humanities class, and maybe one day, maybe, I will actually get the chance to upload all of my lectures for my Ethics class, because I'll have to teach it online as well. But until then, this is it. This is the new class that I am teaching, and I am not going to get paid for it in any conventional sense. So this is the first time in my career that I am going to ask for donations. By which I mean I've set up a Patreon. Um, I am going to request, respectfully, that if you have been following along with everything that I've been uploading and have been you know, keeping up with my work online, whether it's the Video Game Academy stuff like The First Hour or any of the essays that I've written on any of the various blogs that I keep up, or if you've just been following along with the lectures because I've been uploading them for my students at other universities or whatever, great. If you've been enjoying them, if you want me to do more of that, please consider going to my Patreon and subscribing. I've set up multiple different tiers, and each of those tiers will have different benefits. I will be sending out an email to all of my patrons on a monthly basis with what my plans for the future are. And I have goals. I am hoping that this will become a regular occurrence. My plan at this point is that every semester I will have a new book or books to talk about. We're going to talk about the Brothers Karamazov this semester, in the spring, or 
Over the course of the next few months, I hope to come up with some other ideas for what we can do in the fall and have any patrons of sufficient uh, donation, subscription, whatever, don't or be able to vote on what that next subject will be. Uh, again, we'll talk about that more in the future as we go. I also have high hopes. I hope that if I can get enough people to contribute, because I know that I've got a fair number of listeners who have either sort of chimed in casually or are keeping up with literally everything that I'm doing at this point in time, um, I'm hoping that if I can get enough contributions that I can actually turn this into a job. Like, that if I can get, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars a year, then I can turn this into a regularly occurring class. Do more than just sort of turn this into a up-jumped book club and make this into a professional responsibility, an opportunity for me to learn stuff about stuff that I don't actually already know at this point and be able to present that just as I would to a class at a university. Um, and God forbid, if this turns into a full-time gig, then I can actually do what you would expect from a full-time professor. Be able to teach two new classes every year, and be able to publish essays on a regular basis through any of my any of my periodicals and, and stuff. I could totally see becoming an internet lecturer and scholar in my own right. Um, but I'm going to need your help to do it. Uh, there, there's just no way that I can you know, hold down all of these big picture sort of, like, aspirations at the same time as I'm, you know, grading papers and teaching classes and doing the sort of mundane day-to-day -day stuff that an adjunct is required to do when they're teaching a full load of courses across multiple universities. Like, this is stressful stuff is what it comes down to. And if any of you have been following me, you'll notice that I, like, go dark for months at a time, usually between November and December and uh, March and May when all of the grading starts coming in at my other, at my other schools. Um, this is purely pragmatic for me. I want to be able to do more than just teach the same intro to philosophy class over and over and over again. So I'm going to reach out to you. Help me to teach something different. Help me to explore other class possibilities. And the more that, if, if you are contributing, I will recognize that. If you contribute $5 a month or more, I will allow, I will give you input on what my future topics are going to be. And if you are contributing $10 or more, I will let you, like, decide. Just tell me, you know, do this bonus lecture and I will do it. Like, it'll be a one-off, sure, but, you know, if you want me to research something and, and give you the, the Cliff's Notes version of it, I will totally do that. Um... So I want to do this. Like, I want to be able to be more than just a adjunct professor teaching the same old classes over and over again for years on end. I hope that that's going to be the trajectory of my career. Like, I want to publish books, and I want to, you know, be able to research under my own steam. Like, I want to spend time reading more stuff about the philosophy of language, which is, you know, where I would actually publish a PhD if I were inclined to. I want to write a book on theology. Like, the trouble is, I can't do that and also, you know, feed my family, keep a roof over my head. Um, I am frustrated at the limits of being an adjunct professor, in short. 
it's a pretty good gig, and I don't want to, like, badmouth it. It is flexible enough that I can, you know, spend whole days at home studying for, you know, future classes and, and you know, raising my awareness of ideas beyond the pale of what I usually teach. Um, but at the same time, it is relentless drudgery when it comes around to grading, and it is incredibly stressful and very limiting when it is at its most demanding. Um, so I'm hoping that I will be able to do both and. I'm hoping to be able to teach a couple of classes in person because those are great and I want to keep doing it, um, but I also want to be able to expand my knowledge by having income from alternative sources where that is rewarded. Um, so this is my plea to you. Since this is the first class that I am teaching that does not have an income stream from anywhere but you, my loyal subscribers and listeners and patrons, I'm going to start asking for money. Like, politely, humbly, however I can do it. Um, so I need your help, is what it comes down to. If you can make a financial contribution, great. I will absolutely love to hear from you. I will absolutely do whatever I can to accommodate you. I'll absolutely, you know... Like, listen to your feedback and, and your criticism and your ideas, and I will definitely respond with, you know, hopefully good-natured knowledge and research and diligent efforts to, to fulfill what you want. Um, if you can't do that, that's fine. Email me anyway. Make suggestions. Make, you know, make contributions in that respect. And definitely, definitely, definitely share and subscribe. Like, I think I'm onto something here. I don't think I've got, you know, something that will ever be as popular as some of the major, you know, influencers and, and internet personalities current today. And I don't want to do that either. Like, I, I don't want to, you know, turn my apartment into a sound studio and just upload stuff to Twitch on a regular basis. Like, I don't see that as being something I'd be very good at. Um, I, I'm not good at marketing myself, and I am well aware of that. And so much of YouTube personality dumb is that. Um, I don't want to become lowest common, common denominator. Um, I want to cooperate with you, my listeners. I, I want to keep things at the standard that I that I have them. I want to, you know, be able to split, continue splitting that difference between scholarly rigor and. Um, popular accessibility, um, and I want to, you know, talk about things that interest you, like things that are as highbrow as Dostoevsky's novels or something even more highbrow, like we could talk about the literary canon or the state of academia generally or, you know, high philosophical ideas like what are the French doing in the late 20th century, all of that would be totally cool to talk about, and it would also be totally cool talking about, like, themes and ideas in The Legend of Zelda or, you know, let's walk through the history of science fiction or let's, you know... Talk about Dune and, and everything that Frank Herbert is doing with his first few novels or, or whatever we want to talk about. Like, I am open to suggestions here. I want to be interested in stuff and more than just what I have to teach in order to collect a paycheck. Because at the end of the day, it's the same, like, five, six subjects over and over and over again. And it's not that those subjects are bad. Like, I love teaching the Iliad. I love teaching the Odyssey. I love teaching Descartes. And I love teaching Plato. Um... But I want to do more. I want to explore some of the weird niches of both scholarship and popular culture. 
Um, I want to talk about weird video games like Lobotomy Corporation and how much they have moved me or, or have these rich, like, deep themes in them. I want to talk about Umberto Echo's novels. I want to talk about, you know, Kicks and Lou and Jeff Vandermeer. I want to talk about great American writers like William Faulkner and, and Ernest Hemingway, as well as weird overlooked American writers like Horace McCoy and William Lindsey Gresham, the guy who wrote Nightmare Alley. Like, I would love to do any number of these things. But it takes time, and it takes effort, and it's not something I can necessarily afford in my current situation. So the more that you help me, the more I get to do this weird shit. And I get to accommodate whatever weird interests you are interested in. I get to expose you to new awesome stuff that I've bumped into over the years of me just reading like a giant ravenous bugbear. And I get to also talk to you. Talk, like, help you to understand the things that you already love. Um, so, absolutely. Contribute if you can. Definitely check out my Patreon. It is literally just www.patreon.com backslash Professor Kozlowski. Um, you will find all the sign-up information and stuff there, and I will figure out on my end how I'm going to communicate you with, with you and like email stuff to you and, and get your information. Until that happens, you can still reach me at Professor uh, B. Kozlowski2 or Prof. B. Kozlowski2 at gmail.com. I am Totally happy to hear from any of my listeners um, and totally willing to listen to any of your suggestions and or topic ideas or whatever. Um, and definitely, definitely, definitely get the word out. Um, I am looking for support. The more traction I get online, the more stuff I can do online. The more I can turn this into something that takes more time, that I can devote more of my energy to, um, something that can be bigger and more exciting and more interesting than any of us have even expected at this point. Like, I don't know where it can go. Um, and the more resources I get, the more support I get, the more we get to explore that. The more we get to see what this could be. Um, I'm excited for this year. I'm hoping that 2022 is going to be a good one for me. Like, yes, I know there's tons of awful shit happening out there in the world. I don't expect that to change anytime soon. But through all of this craziness, all of the Trump presidency and the, the pandemic and stuff, my fortunes have changed consistently for the better. Like, 2016 fucking sucked for me. It was awful. I was definitely at the end of my rope for a little while there. And now I have a strong listener base for a podcast I created over the course of a year and a half. I'm making money that I can actually think about maybe putting down payments on a house for the money that I'm making uh, teaching classes. I'm doing something that I love. And I want to keep doing that. I want to get better at that. I want to make that more and more a part of my life. Um, so I have high hopes for the future. And I hope you do too. Um, I hope that despite all of the awful stuff that's going on here, this could be a good year for you as well. We can't stop terrible things from happening. But we can do good things while they are happening. We can look for bright spots in all this. We can make the world marginally better. We may not be able to turn the tide, but we can definitely do our bit to enrich the people around us. So, like, share, subscribe... Donate to my Patreon. Get the word out. Professor Kozlowski is 
doing more stuff. We are going to talk through Brothers Karamazov this spring, and then who knows? Sky's the limit. I hope to see you there.